Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, is winter over yet? Can I ditch my heavy coat because it's 60 degrees out? Oh, wait. It's the middle of February. I might not want to put the cold weather gear in storage just yet. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. The vacancy on what's supposed to be a seven-member Court of Appeals is going to continue for another couple of months. We'll talk about the Times Union's year-long investigation into the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. But we found data in New York that showed that some of the private and state-run schools for students with disabilities were using these methods hundreds or sometimes more than a thousand times per month. And we'll hear more from our ongoing Times Union podcast about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. And, you know, we can all name the Gabby Petitos, the Natalie Holloway, the Chandra Levies, and many more But can any of your listeners name a person of color that has garnered the same level of national media coverage? They can't. And guess why? Because it doesn't happen. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Welcome back to Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the headlines this week. We'll start with state news. Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee to serve as the state's top judge was definitively and soundly rejected this week by the state Senate. Tell us more about what happened there. Yeah, this, of course, is Hector LaSalle, a appellate court justice from downstate who was nominated by Governor Kathy Hochul back in December, got blowback, especially from progressive and some labor groups for some of his past decisions and the fact that he used to be a prosecutor. This, of course, is in the context of the U.S. Supreme Court having definitely angered progressives and others with uh, the rejection of Roe v. Wade last summer, brought a new focus on the composition of the State Court of Appeals that LaSalle would have led. He also would have been essentially the chief administrator of the entire judicial branch. (laughs) You know, as we have discussed before, back in January, he was uh, rejected narrowly by a vote of the state Senate's Judiciary Committee. 
The state Senate is charged with uh, advise and consent of Court of Appeals nominees. And Senate Democrats, the supermajority in that chamber, said that, well, that's it. Committee rejected him. It's over. Of course, that led to pushback from Governor Kathy Hochul and Republicans and backers of the judge who demanded that he get a full floor vote in the Senate, you know, noting that the Constitution calls for the Senate to advise and consent. The argument was that doesn't mean a committee that's, you know, not sufficient. Republicans filed a lawsuit uh, a week ago. Uh, there would have been a hearing in that case on Friday. And so on Wednesday, and it appears to have come together pretty quickly, Senate Democrats said, okay, we're going to have a floor vote. It took a little bit more than an hour, and the vote was stark. Uh, 39 to 20 in the 63-seat chamber with a couple of people missing. Uh, basically, almost all the Democrats lined up against Lasalle, who, God bless him, was watching his second rejection by the Senate from uh, the gallery above the, the floor where the debate was happening. Basically, this means that the State Commission on Judicial Nomination, which puts together a seven-name list anytime there's a vacancy on the Court of Appeals, has to go back to zero uh, for this process. That means that the vacancy on what's supposed to be a seven-member Court of Appeals is going to continue for another couple of months. And Jess, I think it's fair to say that the next nominee uh, picked off the eventual list by the governor will uh, not be somebody who will anger uh, progressives, at least not over much. Well, either way, we will have lots to talk about. So stick by us and watch for the news coming out of our Capitol Bureau. Let's move on to New York State inspection stickers. They're getting a makeover, and it is um, radically different from what we're used to slapping on our front windshields every year. What's going on there? Yeah, you may, of course, recall, or you don't have to recall it because you can just see it on your on your car right now that uh, the sticker has sort of all the months of the year going around it. And it is, it's very confusing. You know, there's the kind of punch in the the month that your sticker will expire. The new one basically has the date of your expiration big and bad and exceedingly visible. And of course, it's got a QR code that makes it a lot easier to scan for those unfortunate incidents. And I know this has never, ever happened to you, Jess, when my left your inspection laps even just for a couple of days. Well, yeah, no, I'm very, very diligent about that. I'm going on record. Um, <laughs> yes, and if you uh, head over to timesunion.com, you can see uh, some of the old sticker imitations that are pretty interesting to look at. You'll never see better folk art in your life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, um, let's move down now to Columbia County where the case of the beating, a bizarre case of the beating of a mechanic by a sheriff's deputy and some others um, has been in the news for the last couple of years. Uh, previously on The Eagle, we last discussed this case uh, about around November or December when it experienced an unusual and very abrupt adjournment. But this week, things kicked back up again with this case. So what's going on there? Yeah, and got even weirder. Uh, yes, we're talking about the case of Harold Handy, who, as you noted, was badly injured at a July 4th party in 2020, 
four people were initially indicted on gang assault charges in the case. Those charges were were dropped, although they still um, face felonies. It includes a Columbia County uh, sheriff's deputy, uh, her husband, an IRS agent, and uh, and a contractor. Um, as you noted, the beating of Harold Handy was supposed to go to trial back in November. It was abruptly adjourned, and according to Roger Hannigan-Gilson, who has been uh, doing yeoman's work covering the story for us, it, it appears that that relates to the revelation that there were negotiations going on, civil negotiations um, going on between Handy's attorneys and attorneys for those who had been accused. The implication is that those negotiations involved a potential cash settlement that would have been exchanged in the event that uh, these four, or at least the clients who were negotiating, did not face any criminal charges. That would be an extremely problematic arrangement. In other words, basically, the, you know, the implication being, and once again, this is alleged, not yet proven, that if somebody basically refuses to take part in a police investigation or a, a prosecution in exchange for a cash payment, that's exceedingly problematic. Uh, so the case was adjourned, and we are talking now on um, Thursday morning. It is going to be back in court, but in a courtroom led by a different judge, because uh, the judge who had been overseeing the case for the past two years, Richard Coeek, uh, recused himself. Why did he recuse himself? We're hoping to find out. It's an extremely, extremely bizarre case for all the reasons we've discussed, and um, and I hope people will continue to pay attention. Yes, and we will continue to follow it. All right, let's move on to one of my favorite topics, the weather. We uh, set a few weather records this week in the Capital Region. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Wednesday and Thursday in the Capital Region, the temperature approached if not hit 60 degrees. I myself took my dog for a walk at uh, the Albany Municipal Golf Course today. Everyone I passed, or so it seemed, was commenting on the fact that it was freaky warm. And just the important thing is I bought a season ski pass, okay? And if I don't get at least 10 days in on that ski pass, I'm going to lose out. You know, the amortized cost of these things is, can be rather expensive. And uh, things are not looking good. Uh, you know, if you scroll through the very, very, very advanced forecast, it looks like winter might be making something of at least a mild return uh, in about a week from now. There are a couple of days when you will see snowflakes on my weather app. But right now, it certainly doesn't feel like that. You can get around wearing just a sweater. I did not wear a jacket today when I walked to my car. Yeah, definitely some spring vibes there. But as we know, we live in upstate New York, so anything is possible in the next month and a half. Um, so don't put your winter stuff away just yet, maybe. Um, all right, one more topic. Now, this was the most popular story on our website this week, and that was the news that Bass Pro Shops is planning to come to Clifton Park. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, which is sort of the official name of this chain, this merged chain, is uh, planning to open a 70,000 square foot store in Clifton Park in the capital region without a doubt, but very close to the Adirondack uh, Mountains as well. It's humongous. I would say probably the dominant 
gear store in upstate New York. And yeah, people are are extremely excited for this development, which is going to be right on Clifton, Clifton Park Center Road, which is which is really sort of the the retail heart of Clifton Park. I think it's fair to say. We love our outdoor sports up here in upstate New York. Warm or cold? Yes, warm or cold. Exactly. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Okay, let's move on to a major investigative series that we recently published on the use of restraint and seclusion on students in New York schools. Reporter Emily Munson spent a year looking at these controversial practices that, in some instances, were so extreme that they resulted in the death of children at school. She studied mountains of data on reported incidents from around the country. She spoke to countless schools, parents, and education officials about the use of these techniques. And she wrote nine articles on what she discovered. And most recently, her investigation spurred the New York State Legislature and the Education Department to consider revising the rules around how schools can use restraint and seclusion. I caught up with Emily recently to learn more about her investigation. Let's kind of start with the very basics here. What what is restraint and what is seclusion? When you're talking about those two terms, what exactly are you are you talking about? There are a couple different kinds of restraints. So let me describe this. What's most common is that um, a restraint is a, a physical technique of holding a child in order to immobilize them. So that's a, a physical restraint is when you're using your hands in order to immobilize a child, whether they're standing, if they're seated, or if they're down on the ground. When someone uses straps or handcuffs or other devices in order to immobilize them, that would be a mechanical restraint. And then if you use medication, that's a chemical restraint. Physical restraint is by far most common in New York and uh, in the U.S. in general. Seclusion refers to isolating a child in a room alone that they are unable to leave. Often schools have padded closet-like rooms that are intended specifically for this purpose. And New York's regulations refer to this kind of room as a timeout room. And the regulations say they cannot be locked and children must be watched while they're inside at all times. And these methods are intended to be last resort techniques to respond to students who are in a crisis and their behavior is dangerous in order to safely get control of the situation until the student can calm down. So, but how often then are these methods used in schools? How often do they actually apply restraint and seclusion according to your investigation? We found that across the country, thousands of students are restrained or secluded every day. Some students are repeatedly subject to restraint and seclusion at school, sometimes multiple times per school day. It really varies a lot school by school, but we found data in New York that showed that some of the private and state-run schools for students with disabilities were using these methods 
hundreds or sometimes more than a thousand times per month. One parent provided records to us showing her autistic nonverbal son was restrained 33 times in two months while attending a public school in Katona. And she didn't find out about these restraints until the 33rd incident happened. That gets me to kind of another important point that I wanted to bring up, which is that the data shows us that students with disabilities, boys, and students of color are the kids who are most likely to be restrained and secluded. Mm-hmm. And these methods can be really traumatic for children. They can cause injuries to both the teachers and the students in some cases. And we found at least 85 people age 21 and younger have died from restraint and seclusion since the 1980s in the U.S. So you talked to a number of families whose children uh, experienced restraint and seclusion at school. Can you give us an example of some of the things that you heard from these parents, from local parents and parents across the state? I interviewed Jonathan Moore and his parents. Jonathan is a teenage boy with autism. He communicates using an iPad. And in fifth grade in Boston Spa, he was restrained a few times um, at school. He remembers um, being in math class and staff holding him down on the ground in ways that made it difficult to breathe and removing his iPad so that he was unable to say how he was feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a very traumatic experience for Jonathan. He no longer attends public school as a result of uh, some of these experiences. I also spoke to uh, an adult man, Eric Fight. He's now in his 20s. He says he was repeatedly restrained and secluded throughout elementary and middle school on Long Island. He remembers being dragged down the hallways to the instrument closet or the electrical closet where he would be closed inside sometimes for hours at a time without breaks for food or water or to go to the bathroom. Wow, that sounds like a massive undertaking. And as you said, it took you a year of investigation to to pull this all together and to to glean knowledge from it. Um, what are schools saying about about this? I mean, how, are they defending their actions? Like, what what was your takeaway from from talking to those schools about why the numbers are so high? That's a great question. Most schools told us that these methods are only intended to be last resort techniques that are used in an emergency situations only, and that they're needed in some cases to keep students from hurting themselves or others. We found that that was not always the case, according to their records, that sometimes these methods were used in non-emergency situations as well. There can be times when these methods um, really do prevent someone from running into the street in front of a school bus and you need to grab the child and physically restrain them from doing that, or when they are about to punch another student or something. So there can be appropriate uses, I guess, is what I'm saying. We found often those that, that those situations when use um, was likely appropriate what was not necessarily every, every case. And 
the different schools uh, use different training programs to uh, teach their staff how and when these these methods can be used. We also found that uh, school staffing could could be having an effect here as well. You know, some teachers told us when we investigated this that they did not like using restraint and seclusion. No one really wants to be in a position where they have to use these techniques and that they were aware of and trained in other de-escalation methods. However, some teachers told us that um, sometimes if they didn't have a lot of other support staff in their room or specialists to work with, that they were regularly in situations where they were overwhelmed and they were unprepared to face sort of these crisis situations that were unfolding in front of them. And those de-escalation techniques that they may, may be familiar with, they felt were insufficient. So they were reaching for these last resort methods of restraint and seclusion in order to deal with these kinds of situations. Just to kind of clarify, what is the current law in New York State with regard to reporting incidents of restraint and seclusion in schools? In New York, schools are required to document incidents of restraint and seclusion, and they are required to promptly notify parents when restraints or timeouts are used on their child. However, the schools are not required to report incidents to the state. Therefore, the state education department has no data on how often these methods are used in public schools. And let me just clarify also what the law says about when restraint and seclusion can be used. Mm -hmm. um, New York law allows students to be physically restrained when there is a risk of someone being injured, property damage, or when a student is being disruptive. They're only supposed to use restraints when other less restrictive measures can't be used. And that's actually a more permissive law than the law in a lot of other states. Many states limit the use of restraint only to when there is a risk of injury. Mm -hmm. Also, the state law does permit um, the use of um, prone restraints. Those are face down restraints. And we found cases where kids as young as three years old were being placed in prone restraints in New York. Many states ban prone restraints, and the U.S. Department of Education says they should never be used because they can restrict a child's breathing. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, in New York, you can use a timeout room to confine a student as long as that room is not locked and the student is being monitored inside. So... You wrote about all of this, um, all of the data and all of these things that you have observed through it. And now, as I said earlier, the New York State Legislature and the Education Department are like, hold on, wait, we should really, this is disturbing, we should really look into it. What are the suggestions for improving the situation? So this month, Assemblymember uh, Mikhail Solage introduced legislation to limit the use of restraints and ban seclusion in New York. Her bill would limit the use of physical restraints to situation when there is a, quote, imminent danger of serious physical injury. The bill would ban prone restraints, mechanical restraints, and chemical restraints. It would ban seclusion. 
It would establish a private right for families to sue schools that engage in unlawful restraint and seclusion. And it would also require teachers, school security, and law enforcement to be trained in a state-approved training program around restraint and seclusion. Other members of the legislature, including the education chair, Senator Shelley Mayer, and um, Assemblyman Michael Benedetto, have indicated their concerns about the use of restraint and seclusion as well, and that they're considering proposing some changes too. And most recently, according to department officials, um, the New York State Education Department has recently formed an internal working group that's collaborating on possible regulatory changes around the use of restraint and seclusion, and the department intends to present their proposed amendments this spring. After the break, we'll hear another segment from our brand new Times Union podcast, Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. This podcast is supported by the Times Union, a newspaper of distinction winner by the Journalism Association of New York. Subscribe today to the Capital Region's award-winning news source at timesunion.com slash subscribe. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Times Union launched a brand new podcast last month called Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. It explores the mysterious disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. He vanished without a trace in 2007 from the Washington County village of Greenwich. His case was ruled a probable homicide, but no suspects have ever been named. Our seven-part series delves into the life, disappearance, and 15-year search for Jalik. Here's a little bit of our fifth episode, which dropped this week. <laughs> Bubbly, energetic, adventurous. Gabby Petito wanted to share her life with the world. The search is on in the district for a missing woman. Her name is Chandra Ann Levy. She is 24 years old and hasn't been seen since April 30th. It's been close to 15 years since Beth Holloway first set foot on the island of Aruba looking for her daughter, Natalie. This is where... Every year, the National Crime Information Center releases statistics on the number of Americans reported missing. In 2021, the latest data they have released, there were just over 521,000 missing persons reports made. Of that, 64% are children ages 0 to 17. And of all the missing reports filed for children, 38% of those were for black kids. Just over 12% of Americans are black, according to the 2020 census data. And you know, we can all name the Gabby Petitos, the Natalie Holloway, the Chandra Levy's, and many more. But can any of your listeners name a person of color 
that has garnered the same level of national media coverage? They can't, and guess why? Because it doesn't happen. Natalie Wilson is the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. She says only 7% of missing persons of color cases get any sort of national media attention. So we want our missing to be household names too. Natalie has a public relations background. Her sister-in-law, Derricka Wilson, is a former law enforcement officer. Together, they created the Black and Missing Foundation in 2008. These men and women that are going missing look like my siblings or look like my parents and my grandparents. They matter. Our community matters. Natalie says they work with families and loved ones of missing people of color. They help them spread awareness and communicate with law enforcement to keep their cases active. Visibility, awareness is key. Exposure for these cases, it's vital because it, you know, alerts the community that someone is missing and we can help find them. But it also puts pressure on law enforcement to add resources to the case. Natalie says cases of missing black children are often treated differently by law enforcement, given less urgency. You know, sadly, um, or oftentimes when our children are reported missing, they're classified as a runaway and they do not receive the Amber Alert and they definitely don't receive any type of media coverage at all. Cambridge Greenwich Police initially treated Jalik Rainwalker's case as a runaway. They began to search for him on November 4th, 2007, more than 48 hours after he was reported missing. Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, reported his son missing around 9 a.m. on November 2nd. He called Cambridge Greenwich Police to make the report. Stephen Kerr declined to speak with us for this podcast. Jocelyn McDonald did not respond to multiple requests for comment. But at the time, they told reporters and the police that they believed their son had run away. Here's Stephen speaking to a gaggle of reporters outside a few days after Jalik disappeared. If anybody knows what Jalik is, we'd really love any information. Or Jalik, if you're watching this, we'd love to, we'd love for you to come home and just try to figure this out. Jalik's adoptive grandmother, Barbara Reilly, was at her home in Wynetskill, about 30 miles due south of Greenwich, when she got the call from her daughter, Jocelyn McDonald. It was late morning, early afternoon on Friday, November 2nd. She says Jocelyn told her Jalik had run away. It was a very unusual day, obviously. Barbara says she jumped in the car and sped to Stephen and Jocelyn's cabin outside of Greenwich. After she arrived, she says Jocelyn left to go pick up her other children. She said she had to take them to appointments. When uh, Jalik went missing and how you said Stephen was just walking around nonstop, 
you know, talking about food, Red Robin, Elaine Person. Well, he would be, um, uh, it was all about the food. It was all about how Elaine had invaded his personal space because he wasn't in the uh, car when she arrived with Jalik. And then he talked about how um, Jalik must have gotten in with the several black uh, respite kids there and they were, he must have run away to be with them. And then it was, um, no, he's probably become, you know, run away to be, find his biological family. And then, no, it's, he's you know he's ashamed and you know and so it was always trying to like find a way that he has left because he's ashamed or he's gone to a gang or he's right and then Stephen Kerr told the Times Union about a month later that he believed Jalik ran away to join the black community in Albany Schenectady or Troy the three largest cities in New York's capital region All of them are within 30 to 40 miles of Greenwich. Stephen's exact quote, given to reporter Dan Higgins in 2007, was, quote, Every time we went through a predominantly African-American neighborhood, he was like a kid in a candy shop. Can we stop there and go shopping? I'm 100% sure he's in an urban setting within an African-American community, unquote. Barbara says she couldn't believe Jalik had run away. Whether it was to join a gang, to find his birth family, or any of the other theories her son-in-law was putting out at the time, it just didn't make sense to her. And then, suddenly, in the afternoon on November 2nd, just hours after he reported his son missing, Stephen said he had to leave to go to a friend's birthday party. And I said, well, I think somebody should be you know, talking with the police, going house to house, searching. Have you gone to the neighbors up here? And he goes, no. He goes, but I'm going to go to the party. And he left. Rainwalker, The Lost Boy was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. New episodes of Rainwalker The Lost Boy drop Tuesday mornings. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check out timesunion.com for timelines, photos, and more extras. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Emily Munson for their contributions to this episode. 